We'll look at 2 Samuel chapter 8 today. And, uh, that's the chapter where we left off in the Samuel studies. Continue to go uh, through 2 Samuel might possibly pause for a few weeks as we approach Lent. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we can sit under the teaching of your word and that it can renew our minds, that the word of God has power to change the, the desires and affections of our hearts. And we pray that you would do that. You would encourage us as we see you more clearly revealed through scripture. Be here with us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. The last time we were in 2 Samuel, uh, we saw uh, chapter 7 was about David's uh, desire to build a temple for the Lord. And uh, he wanted to do that, but God actually came back to David and said, you are not the one to build the temple for my name. Uh, God had reserved that role and calling for Solomon, but rather God promised to David many blessings, saying that he would make his dynasty sure, and, uh, and God gave what we call the Davidic covenant in assuring David that his descendants would remain on the throne. And uh, right after that, in this chapter, it lists many of David's victories. And this was a, a kind of a precursor and what was necessary for there to be peace so that his son Solomon can eventually build a temple for the Lord. And so we're going to look at this chapter and uh, draw some lessons from, from David's victories. First, uh, two points today. First, the Lord's covenant faithfulness. The Lord's covenant faithfulness. Verse 1 says, after this, David defeated Philistines, subdued them. David took Metheg, Amah out of the hand of the Philistines, defeated Moab. He measured them with a line, making them lie down in the ground. Two lines he measured to be put to death, and one full line to be spared. The Moabites became servants to David and brought tribute. David also, verse 3, defeated Hedadezer, the son of Rehab, king of Zobah, as he went to restore his power at the river Euphrates. Verse 5. And when the Syrians of Damascus came to help Hadadezer, king of Zobah, David struck down 22,000 of the Syrians. Then David put garrisons in Aram of Damascus, and the Syrians became servants to David and brought tribute. And the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. So these verses and other verses following mention David's military conquests, and the list is very impressive. It seems like he defeated everyone he faced, right? So verse 1 was Philistines, verse 2, Moab, verse 3 was uh, Hadadezer, verse 5, Aram, and later on, verse 13, Edom. So basically, David won wherever he went. It's as if he could not fail. If you can imagine um, trying to just, you know, make this a little more real to us, if you can imagine an NBA team winning every single team that they, beating every single team that they face, winning every single game that they play, right? 
not just 73 games, which is the record, but winning all 82 games, and then winning all playoff games after that. And if you can imagine that, after a while, because you've won every game, whenever you step on the court, you know you're going to win that game too. I don't know, make that real to you. Like every test you take, you get 100. And it just has happened all your life for 18, 19, 20, 21 years. For the next test you take, you know you're going to get 100. You just know without a doubt. That was David. It's as if everywhere he stepped foot, right, whenever he went into the battlefield, it was already a certainty that he would win that battle. And the author makes it clear why. At the end of verse 6, it says, the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. So even though David was impressive in the battlefield, this list of victories says more about God than it does about David. You see, back in Genesis 15, the Lord promised something to Abraham. It says in Genesis 15, 18, that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, to your offspring I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. The Lord promised Abraham the, the land of Canaan, ranging from the river Euphrates up north to the river of Egypt down south. And that's why it's called the promised land. Right? We refer to it as a promised land. It's a land that God promised to Abraham to give to Abraham and to his descendants. And God continued to confirm this promise to the later generations. We see an example of that in Deuteronomy 11, verse 24. Every place on which the sole of your foot treads shall be yours. Your territory shall be from the wilderness to the Lebanon and from the river, the great the river Euphrates, to the western sea. And it's the same promised land that the Lord confirms that he will give to his people. Now, God fulfilled this promise when Israel took the land of Canaan under Joshua's leadership. And the conquest that took place, and we see that in the book of Joshua. But Israel took only a portion of the promised land. Other parts of the promised land were still inhabited by the Philistines, the Moabites, the Edomites, and so on. Now, after David comes and he becomes king, that's what this chapter is recording. He successfully fought against these remaining inhabitants of the land. So David, with his military conquests, extended the promised land. And we can, you can see an uh, what we're talking about here in this map. That, uh, what is that, pink? That pink portion in the middle is the, the land of Judah, and then all these other, the green and the purple and the, I guess, beige up there, were different lands that now David, with his conquest, extended, which more similarly are the, the borders of the, the land that the Lord promised Abraham. Not only that, but um, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, in the previous chapter, the Lord also made a promise to David, saying, in 7 verse 9, and I will make for you a great name, right? Like the name of 
the great ones of the earth. And there's a promise that God gave to, to David. I will make for you a great name. And then in our text in verse 13, the next chapter 8, verse 13, it says, David made a name for himself when he returned from striking down 18,000 Edomites in the Valley of Saul. And again, it says the same thing in verse 14. The Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. See, so we're talking about the same thing here. From one perspective, we see that by winning these battles, David made a name for himself. But from the covenant promise perspective, we see that the Lord was fulfilling his promise to make David's name great. And again, that's why it says the Lord gave David victory wherever he went. It says something about God, that he is the promise keeper, one who is faithful to the promises that he makes to his people. Uh, we say this phrase so frequently, right? God is faithful. God is faithful. We hear it, we say it so frequently. Like, what do we mean by that? You go to see a movie and the parking lot is full and you're running late. And then just at the right time, someone pulls out of their spot right in front of you. And you see that and you go, wow, God is faithful. And we hear that all the time. We say things like that all the time. So what do we mean when we commonly throw that phrase around? That God is faithful? Does that mean that, that he gives us what we want when we need it or when we want it? Not exactly. The faithfulness of God often refers to the fact that God will do what he said he will do. Because he is faithful, we can trust in his word. We can bank on the promises of God. Because he is faithful. The Lord promised Abraham the land of Canaan. So that means the land that, the, that Abraham was promised, the moment that the Lord spoke that promise, it was his. Because it was the Lord who said it. Now, the theme, that theme of entering the promised land carries over into the New Testament in, in a number of different ways that's relevant to us. For example, just as Joshua led Israel into the land of Canaan, believers received the promised inheritance through Jesus Christ. And Hebrews 4 talks about that, talks about this ongoing battle that it still exists to enter the place of rest. Except this battle that believers face today isn't fought with swords, but by faith. So just as Abraham and his descendants received a promise, and had to trust that God's promise was true, New Testament believers are called to trust in the word of God and fight against sin in faith to enter the rest of God, meaning the blessings that are in Jesus Christ. Philippians 1.6 says, He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. I mean, think about this and connecting it to our lives. David went into every single battle. And as soon as he stepped on that battlefield, it was as good as won because the Lord was with him and gave him victory. That means no matter what your battles are today, as seemingly unconquerable your battles are today, as soon as you wake up in the morning, 
it's as good as done that you'll be made more like Jesus today than you were yesterday. Why? Because the Lord is faithful. The Lord is faithful to his covenant promises to his people in Jesus Christ. Secondly, David, the human king. Um, later on in this chapter, in verse 15, it says, So David reigned over all Israel, and David administered justice and equity to all his people. So the nature of David's reign is summarized in this one verse. Uh, the New Living Translation very simple, simply says, He did what was just and right for all his people. So, David, uh, so it means David was fair to everyone. Regardless of who they were, he didn't favor his tribe over others. He administered justice and equity to all his people. He was a good king. He was a fair king. I think this is saying that David was the Lord's covenantal king, meaning he ruled his people in the way that the king was supposed to reign in accordance with the Lord's covenant. See, Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 24 says, I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. Those same two words, justice and righteousness, justice and equity. He is the Lord of love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. So this is how God rules over the earth. This is how God rules over his people. And I think what verse 15 is saying is that David reigned over Israel as an extension of God's hand over his people. And we see characteristics of this covenantal king, David, this covenantal king, even in this chapter. At the end of chapter, uh, verse 6, it says, The Syrians came, the Syrians became servants to David and brought tribute. David took the shields of gold that were carried by the servants of Hedadezer and brought them to Jerusalem. And from Beta and from Berothai, the cities of Hedadezer, King David took very much bronze. Verse 10, Toy sent his son Joram to King David to ask about his health and to bless him because he had fought against Hedadezer and defeated him. For Hedadezer had often been at war with Toy, and Joram brought with him articles of silver, of gold, and of bronze. These also King David dedicated to the Lord, together with the silver and gold that he dedicated from all the nations he subdued. Okay, so this is saying that David attained a lot of gold, silver, and bronze. He got them, some from as spoils of war. Also, he attained some treasures as defeated nations became his servants and they periodically brought him tribute. And he also got more treasures as allies brought gifts to him for defeating a common enemy. And now it says, all these treasures he attained, he did not keep for himself, but verse 11 says, he dedicated them to the Lord. So we see a glimpse into David's heart, and I think the author is showing us that to say that David was the kind of king that he was supposed to be. He was the Lord's covenantal king. But now, despite having verses like this that show King David, this chapter also contains this almost 
parenthetical verse about horses and chariots that I think kind of reveals something else about David. Verse 4, it says, David took from him 1,700 horsemen, 20,000 foot soldiers, and David hamstrung or crippled, made, uh, made useless, David hamstrung all the chariot horses, but left enough for 100 chariots. Um, the law, the Mosaic law, specifically mentions the attitude that Israel's king was supposed to have toward horses, believe it or not. Deuteronomy 17, verse 16 says, only he, talking about the king, must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. And the reason behind this was obvious. Psalm 20, verse 7. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. And that's why the, the king was not supposed to have many horses. We see an example of this in Joshua chapter 11, verse 4. They came out with all their troops, meaning this great, vast army that was against the people of God. They came out against a great horde in number like the sand that is on the seashore. You couldn't even count them. And very many horses and chariots. Verse 6, And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid of them, for tomorrow at this time I will give over all of them slain to Israel. You shall hamstring their horses and burn their chariots with fire. The Lord says, Don't worry about how many are coming against you. It does not matter. Even if everyone is fighting with weapons and you're fighting with sticks, it will not matter. The Lord says, I will give them into your hands. And then he told them, after you defeat them, you must hamstring their horses and render them unusable in battle. Because, again, the Lord did not want his people to be like the other nations and rely on their military strength. They were to be a different people who rely solely on the Lord. And it seems like David was aware of this, and that is why he did the same thing, except that he left enough for a hundred chariots. Now, this seems, like, kind of, this seems kind of a like a relative small number, considering how many they captured, and also considering how many horses that other nations have. So it seems like what David did in sparing a hundred horses might not have even violated the terms that we saw in Deuteronomy about the king not acquiring many horses for himself. But what we do know for sure is that one of the big stains in King David's kingship was his sin that was recorded in later on in this book in chapter 24 for his sin of taking a census and counting the fighting men in Israel basically meaning trusting in his military strength rather than trusting in the Lord. So maybe a seed was planted when he kept a hundred horses for himself. So the point is this. David was a human king, meaning King David was very human. David, who administered justice and equity to all his people like God, was not like God. David, the human king. Um, 
I'll put up this uh, screenshot, and you probably can't read that. So this was a, a, a part of my sermon notes of this sermon, um, and I'll read a portion of it at the very, like in the middle of it. Start right there. I'll, a portion of the promised land was still inhabited by the Philistines, Moabites, Edomites, and so on. I said that, right? That's part of my sermon notes. And it says, after David became king, Chicken Man came to destroy the mean monster named Godzilla. But he was too strong, so he left. He got a team of superheroes to destroy Godzilla, but he was gone, so they left. The end. David, with his military conquests, extended the land. <laughs> okay, so um, basically what happened was Ezra came and typed this while I was working on my sermon. And so that's why that part about the chicken man and Godzilla, it's so out of place here, right? It's so out of place. Like, there's like no reason that part should be in there among the other sentences about God and David. And the point is this, that that's what we see here even in this story. David had no place being mentioned in the same likeness as God. How could it be said of David that he administered justice and equity to all his people like God when he clearly didn't do that for Bathsheba or her husband that he murdered? But you see, we have many out-of-place things like this in the Bible because of the grace of God. Jeremiah 23, verse 5 says, Behold, the days are coming declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. Jesus is the true just and righteous king. Jesus came and satisfied what was just and right before God by paying for David's sin on the cross. And now, because of grace, because of grace, it can be said of an adulterous murderer that he administered justice and equity to all his people like God. There's so many things, so many things in the Bible that do not make sense apart from the grace of God. And this is also the very reason why the faithfulness of God is certain in our lives today. No matter what you deal with, no matter what you have to try to conquer on a daily basis, no matter how fierce those daily battles are, the certain promise that the Bible gives is that we can trust in the faithfulness of God, believing that his promised victory is sure because of the just and righteous king who gave himself on the cross for our sins. May we believe in that, trust in that in our lives. And every single big or small battles that we go through in our lives, trust in that promise and give ourselves to the Lord without giving up to be faithful to the Lord. Let's pray together. I think, uh, you know, a lot of times we can read the Bible and look at these Bible characters and uh, uh, 
dichotomize them. I don't know if that's a word, but, you know, like we put certain people in the good category, certain people in the bad category. And, uh, you know, usually David falls in the good category. He was a covenantal king. But if you look carefully in his life, a lot of details and the verses and things like that, we see that he was a very human king, just like us. We see that in his heart he desired to, to honor the Lord, so he dedicated all the treasures that he received and gave it to the Lord, understanding who he is before God. But at the same time, in another chapter, we see that he counts his fighting men because he's trusting in his military might, just like all the other kings of the foreign nations. It's so difficult to dichotomize and place people in categories because uh, we're all human and we're all similar in those ways. But to that, to that scene of chaos in a world where sinners are trying to be good, the righteous branch, the just and right king enters redemptive history and satisfies God the Father's just and righteous standard and in his love offers us grace. And that's the story that we can trust in. And based on that, what that means is we can go back to our rooms today and face the same struggles in the promises of God and the assurance that just as David entered into a battlefield facing a vast army with, uh, you know, like nothing but sticks, seemingly, that we can actually enter those battles in our lives daily and conquer them in the strength that he provides because that is the assurance that he gives us in Jesus Christ. So trust in his promises for us and be willing to go through the daily battles. Let's pray together for a moment. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your word that helps us to take our eyes off of ourselves, to place them on you. We repent because too often our eyes are fixed on the circumstances around us and the problems ahead of us in the weaknesses that are in us. But help us, Lord, to take our eyes away from those things, to fix our eyes on you, your word, your character, who you are, your promises, your faithfulness that assures the fulfillment of your promises to us. Lord, we pray that you would help us to leave this place in the strength that comes supernaturally because of trusting in your word receiving it in our hearts. Thank you, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll uh, pray and then we'll finish. Uh, but before we do, I just want to make one other application to the text that we saw. Uh, it would be silly, right, for King David to come into power and then, uh, you know, like know about the promises that God gave to Abraham and then throughout the generations and then just say, oh, God promised this, so this land will eventually be ours anyway. And then he never, like, goes into battle, never fights the enemy, and uh, 
never tries to extend the land, right? That's a, that'd be silly, right? God used and called him to go into battle, and the Lord was with him, and that was a good thing that he did. And through that, God's promise was fulfilled. And uh, I think a lot of times, like, we do similar things. Oh, these things are in the Bible. God says these things are true. Uh, and then, like, we agree and we say amen, and then we don't really do anything. Um, and just, you know, one way I want to just apply it is uh, just, um, ask us to just kind of think about and examine, like, how much or how seriously we're praying these days um, in life, you know, because uh, if God is faithful and his promises to us are true, one way that we exercise that faith is through prayer. The things that he wants to do in my life, the things that he wants to do in our life, the things that he wants to do through us, maybe to your family, uh, to your friends, your coworkers, uh, different battles, spiritual battles, internal battles, external battles, different things that God wants to do, he will do as we go into battle through prayer. So let's, uh, let's pray about that. Let's just close our time together praying and examining. Uh, Lord, teach me to pray. Help me to get on my knees and to not rely on myself and rely on horses and you know, trust in my strength, but help me to trust and rely on you through the avenue of prayer. Some of you, like, you come to church and you kind of feel like maybe you're just barely hanging on, you know? Like, I'm, I'm like, living my life, and I barely hang on, so I, make, I barely make it into the doors, into the sanctuary doors on Sunday. Again, I want to encourage you to pray and uh, interact with God and receive his strength through prayer and exercise that faith through prayer so that those daily battles that you fight, uh, you can see victory. Uh, in what God is doing in your life through prayer. Okay, so can we do that? Can we just pray that at this time? And then I'll close us in prayer and benediction. Heavenly Father, we thank you and we praise you, we worship you. That even though you're this uh, creator, almighty God, so transcendent and um, above and beyond, you are mindful of us. Every single thing going on in our lives, every crevice of our hearts, every hidden thought, you are aware. And in Jesus Christ, you care for us. You love us. You are for us. Nothing can separate us from your love because of Christ. And even in different states of our hearts, just different ways that we try to run away and minimize or, or uh, uh, try to be minimal in our faith, uh, you're constantly chasing after us. You're never giving up on us. You are always faithful to us. And just uh, what an amazing thing as we see the great faithfulness of God. Just pray that you would strengthen our hearts through that understanding, help us know that and believe that. And just even the daily uh, battles that we face, Lord, help us to fight it in the strength that you provide so that we can 
enter into the rest that you desire for us in Jesus Christ. May we experience the blessings that are ours in Christ. Thank you, Lord. Now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, this unending, unchanging covenant love of the Father God, the fellowship and the strength, of the Holy Spirit be with you God's people both now and forever. Amen.